we're defending the right of the people of Virginia and of Alabama to decide some questions for themselves. Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and in this episode, we're diving into one of the original debates in American politics, federalism versus states' rights. Even though it's centuries old, this debate just keeps popping up. And if you folks who have had some liberals to tell you about the Constitution, let me suggest that you go to your library and you read the debates in the Constitutional Convention of the state of Virginia. And you read the debates in the Constitutional Convention of the state of New York and of New Hampshire and of the original 13 states. That's George Wallace, a democratic populist politician evoking the origins of this debate in 1967 while he was the governor of Alabama. And you will find that not a single one of the states wanted to come into the Union until first they were guaranteed that we were going to have a government of limited powers, that all powers not delegated to the government expressly would be lodged and kept with the people of Virginia and of New York and of New Jersey. The basic question is, What powers should the central federal government of the United States have? And what powers should the state governments maintain? This question, this debate around federalism, is essentially what originally brought the states together into a union. It's what keeps these states together as a nation, and occasionally it's what threatens to divide them as well. And in the debates in New Jersey and New York, they said, we've got particular and peculiar problems in New York, and we want the right to determine those ourselves. And so they wouldn't even come into the union until first they agreed to put the first ten amendments in the Constitution. And so those in the Constitutional Conventions sound exactly like we in Alabama sound, and sound exactly like many of you who are here today sound. And sound exactly like plenty of contemporary conservative politicians. Here's Republican Senator Ted Cruz in 2015, before gay marriage became legal in all 50 states. There are states in this union where the voters have chosen to adopt gay marriage. And, and under our system of federalism, we've got 50 states. We've got people where the, the values and, and the mores of citizens in Texas vary from those in Florida or New York or Vermont or California. And I think that's the way it should be. You know, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis referred to that as laboratories of democracy. And the idea of the states as laboratories of democracy is that policies will be tried out differently across the states, tinkered with, and perfected in these different conditions, that ultimately these laboratories will produce the best possible policy application and combination. That you let the, the, the states a bit experiment with, with things that work for them. And, and the role of the federal level is to make sure that the public good of lessons learned from decentralized experiments are also exchanged and evaluated and seen what is really due to very local circumstances, what can be generalized. That's Walter Odd a professor of political economy here at the LSE. And that, I think, is, is a good thing. And of course, federalism has its downsides too. But let's go back one step. What is federalism? What are the basic essential elements of a federal government? A federal government means a decentralized, devolved government. So some of the competence to 
do your regulation or in particular spending and raising revenue is at a lower level of government. So instead of having one central government, you have another lower tier of government, such as states, that also make regulations, collect taxes, hold elections to elect legislatures, and importantly have constitutions. So the real important thing is that for a federal government, you have kind of constitutional rights of that they make up their own mind and can take these decisions by themselves, often with kind of democratic legitimation as well. And why would a group want to join together into a federation? Why adopt federalism? The advantage is, of course, that you can combine the economies of scale that a central government has with the dispense and, and, and tailoring it to levels of government so that you can cater also to very different preferences. You get the strength of a big nation with the ability to allow different groups of people to tweak their society to meet their needs. But of course at this point you start to get into another fundamental question of federalism. Then the discussion starts which functions of government should be more done by the central government. Many political economists and scientists say that monetary policy and national security should be handled by the central federal government. On the other hand, public goods such as education and infrastructure are much more locally tied. Most, most public goods, even roads, have a local character. And research has demonstrated that federal governments work better when the local entities administer public goods. And then finally, redistribution, one would say... When Walchard is talking about redistribution, she's talking about how taxes are collected and then spent by the state and federal governments. Given in democracies that you probably have a kind of consensus of what you want the government to do uh, in redistribution, you should finance that centrally but spend it uh, locally because otherwise you have a race to the bottom problem. She's saying that central governments should collect much of the taxes but that states should spend that money locally. But let's dive into that question of a race to the bottom a little bit more. Every uh, council or lower level of government has a, has a tendency to to not have high taxes so that they attract the high-earning, wealthy, high-value-added individuals and and spend very little on redistribution so as not to attract the poor and the marginally employed. And this would then go against that consensus uh, on redistribution that perhaps a general election has given you. Now, of course, the United States isn't the only federal system around. Germany, Switzerland, Australia, India, even Canada have a federal system. And all of these federal systems can't be the same, can they? No. Uh, once you go into federalism research, it is actually extremely complicated. I mean, But what are some of the basic commonalities? You recognize a federal system typically that it has an upper and a lower house. So you represent the territorial decentralization, and that is often not done according to you know the size of the subunits, like you have two senators in the United States. Sometimes they go, and that is, would be a difference between the United States and Germany. The upper house in, in the United States is still elected. You elect, your, you vote for your senators. In Germany, based the government of a, of a region, of a Bundesland, goes directly into this upper house. So there's no separate election for this, this upper house. And some of the major differences between these systems have to do with how much power these lower houses, these states or local governments, have. And here's the crux of the contemporary debate around federalism. At the top of the episode, you heard from some politicians who support states' rights and believe in maintaining the strength of states to self-regulate on many matters. 
But let's hear Waltrod's perspective. Does the current form of federalism in the states grant too much power to them? In a short, short answer would be yes, I do think so. Uh, the United States is ready to have a few costs and, and disadvantages because it values decentralization of power so much. That the first where you notice that is, of course, with welfare. I mean, you are a lean, relatively mean welfare state. Meaning the U.S. is willing to sacrifice certain efficiencies that a more central government would provide because states' rights are so important to not only the elected officials, but the people who live there too. Now let's get into some specifics. How does federalism actually play out in policy? First, we have to start out with the actual law that moves something from being a state issue to a federal issue. We were, we were doing something great with the Commerce Clause. Let's talk about... Let's keep we, keep we, that we, going. We could start with that. Um, <laughs> okay. That's Chris Parks and Sierra Smucker. Chris is a historian here at the LSE, and Sierra is a PhD candidate from Duke University and a visiting research student in the U.S. Center. We asked Chris and Sierra to join us for a discussion on the practicalities of federalism, since both of them have researched two major issues that have been fought on the state and federal level, same-sex marriage and gun violence. So we'll just jump into it? Yeah. yeah. What is it? Why should we care about that? Sure. So the Commerce Clause, for, for people that don't know, is, is one of the ways the federal government ends up regulating sort of large policies that affect a lot of states at one time. So the, the U.S. federalism is really based on the idea that the states hold most of the power for creating policy, and the federal government is quite restrained in what they are legally able to do. And the federal government can try to pass policy. The Supreme Court will check whether or not that policy is actually allowed by the Constitution. States' governments are allowed to press charges against the federal government if they believe that the federal government is overstepped. So this tension between the federal government's authority over state policy is what really drives a lot of American federalist debates. And one area, as Chris, as Chris mentioned, is gun control, and this has been a huge point of contention, especially for states that are quite pro-gun pro rights. Um, the federal government, in order to actually make policy related to gun control, needs to argue that making that policy will affect interstate commerce, and this is the Commerce Clause. They have to argue that their role as a federal government to make sure that all of the states sort of work together in a harmonious way across all the territories um, that that policy will be important for that, for that cross-state um, interaction. But if a state can argue that really that, that policy has no bearing on some sort of interstate commerce, then the federal government is not legally allowed to sort of go forward with that. So Sierra, let's dive into gun control as a state versus federal issue. Different states definitely have very different gun policies, um, but where the federal government has stepped in is where they can argue that a particular gun or particular regulation could be dangerous if that gun or weapon moved in between states. So one of the, one of the regulations the federal government stepped in to, to execute was banning sawed-off shotguns um, from being, from being uh, passed between states or sold at all because they argued that it would be passed between states and this could really uh, negatively affect uh, different states that had banned the, these sawed-off shotguns which are incredibly dangerous um, and in that way argued that it was an interstate commerce um, issue. Hmm. Um, there have been other ways where this interstate commerce has come up. One of the ways is, which is in the area of research that I study, which is domestic violence and firearms policy, has been 
um, the sort of interstate respect for restraining orders from one state to another. So if someone gets a restraining order against them in California, that means that they are no longer allowed to own a gun. But if that person goes to Arizona and tries to buy a gun, they could do if there was no federal intervention saying that Arizona needs to respect the restraining order that was levied in California. So that's another way. So that is another way that the interstate commerce has sort of been used and expanded beyond, you know, just trade between states. It's actually become a, a larger um, body of laws that can regulate firearm selling and transmission between states to specific individual people. And this has caused obviously a lot of contention for second right amendment proponents who believe that you know a gun should never be denied them. So if they can get it somewhere, they should be able to have it. Um, and it's, it's caused a lot of consternation among that group. Gay marriage advocates have had a great deal of success pushing their, uh, uh, you know, pushing for legislative successes on the state level, but then so have opponents of same-sex marriage. So it's been kind of a double-edged sword on this particular issue. You know, th that cliche about the uh, about states being the sort of laboratories of democracy, that does work, but it uh, or that does apply to same-sex marriage, but it can apply equally to the effort to forbid same-sex marriage or to prevent it from ever uh, coming to fruition. So when have we seen friction in between the states and the federal government on same-sex marriage? One of the most interesting aspects of that particular debate was the alleged, or I suppose now confirmed, overreach of the federal government into dictating what states could and couldn't do with regards to marriage policy. Uh, and this centers around uh, kind of the earliest major confrontation over same-sex marriage at the national level in the 90s. Um, it started with in 1993 when uh, Hawaii, the Hawaii Supreme Court uh, affirmed that it was sex discrimination to deny uh, marriage rights to, to men seeking a marriage certificate or to women. But certainly the federal government stepped in in 1996 uh, and the Congress passed a, a, a law known as the Defense of Marriage Act, which said that any state that recognizes same-sex marriage, um, no other state is required to, uh, to recognize that marriage. And this led to a 17-year-long legal battle uh, or ultimately what took 17 years to overturn, where advocates of same-sex marriage said that, in effect, that this was more power than the federal government had any right to impose, that if states want to recognize the uh, marriages performed in other states, they can, and that if states uh, perform same-sex marriages, they should have the expectation that they're going to be recognized in another state. I think I can build on something that, that you just said, which is, you know, we talk about federalism as potentially hindering um, these, these broader national policies and these advances in social justice or gun control policy. Um, but I think what Chris touched on and, and is also really relevant for gun control is that it really depends sort of on what side you're on. Um, so one of the, one of the most um, damaging legislative practices that have come up for the gun control movement is that the gun rights movement has have started implementing these preemption laws. So preemption laws are basically laws that are passed by a higher level of government. Um, so your, your hierarchy will go, you know, local city government, state legislator, and then the federal government. So state governments have started passing preemption laws that basically say that no local government within the, their state can pass a law regarding gun control. Only the state 
the state level can make those those calls. And actually, this happened with the with the bathroom issue, mm-hmm. um, where preemption laws were put in place in North Carolina and a few other states that said that local jurisdictions could no longer pass any laws related to you know LGBTQ plus rights. Um, but but this has been happening for gun gun control groups specifically, where where gun rights organizations have passed these preemption laws saying no local authority can pass any gun control that is not you know recognized by the state and and this is a big problem because a lot of local communities are a on the ground um, know exactly what the the needs are of that community in terms of gun control and this is supposed to be one of the benefits of federalism right is that we're devolved enough that we can we can be on the ground see what's happening and actually pass policy that's really relevant for the community Um, but by passing these preemption laws you're really undermining the the ability of these local authorities to do that so that has been a big problem in states that have communities that actually want to pass gun control, but it's sort of the opposite um, for communities that don't want to pass gun control, right? So if you, if you wanted to pass a preemption law that said you had to have gun control, maybe at the federal level, right? So the federal level says all states must comply with this. I mean, that's a win for gun control, but it's the same tactic. So fe- my point is that federalism can basically work the same way f- on, on both ends of, the, of an argument. If, if the country is completely divided on an issue, you're not going to make more progress um, than you would than you would otherwise um, in any with any given system. If that makes sense. It's it's interesting. It puts the states in a rather hypocritical middle ground, exactly. where they're ar- arguing to the federal government that they, you know, that it's intrusive for them to be told what to do in the in their own states, and then they turn around and tell the municipal governments that we have every right to tell you what to do in your jurisdiction. Exactly. It seems to me that in some cases you get a critical mass of states doing the same thing, like bringing in same-sex marriage or, or whatever, and then that eventually goes as a federal kind of level policy. Is that true, or is that just my perception? Or can, can you get like, you know, if it's in like California does something, or Florida does something, or Texas does something, does that mean that kind of everyone will then do it, or is that just the perception I might have? I think that in that sense, the the states are responding to grassroots level activism that sort of goes across the states, that happens uh, all across the country. Um, and so you'll get the states, states responding to it or sometimes not responding to it, depending on which uh, constituency and which group, you know, a, a political party happens to have the most clout. Um, but, I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of examples all through American history of there being a bit of a bandwagon effect when it comes to s- policies that in, were initiated on the state or local level and then emerged on the federal scene and eventually became federal law. Um, and it, again, it sort of goes in both, di- or cuts in both directions. It can be progressive or it can be reactionary. Uh, the efforts for same-sex marriage definitely started on the state level and sort of grew to the federal. Um, but then so did prohibition. Yeah, so I was, I was going to jump in uh, a little bit with maybe a little bit too much academic stuff right now, but <laughs> everyone's talking about laboratories of democracy, so I'm going to just jump in with some, <laughs> some more terms that come from political science and policy research. So there is a quite a, a vast literature on what we call policy diffusion, which is this idea, right, that policies don't occur within a state or a national government sort of independently, but are really inspired or shaped by policies that have come around it in, in peer groups or, or for whatever reason. So there's talk about this in IR a lot between countries, uh, but also a lot in the, in the U.S. Um, so there are, there are several different ways that academics theorize that policies diffuse. And one of them is learning, right? So, so c- 
states look to each other, potentially nearby states, to figure out what the best ideas are for their, for their state. Um, one is coercion. So coercion can happen either across states or, or from the top down. Um, usually this is the federal government imposing some you know, levy to encourage or really push states to adopt some policy. And this happens a lot um, with domestic violence and gun control policy where the federal government doesn't completely own the authority to make the states do anything, but they say things like, if you would like this funding from the Violence Against Women Act um, to help support your domestic violence survivors in your state, you need to put on all of your restraining orders that it is illegal by federal law for anyone accused of a misdemeanor crime of domestic, or convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence from owning, possessing, or obtaining a firearm. So that's sort of this coercion idea. Um, there's another element of socialization, which I think is more of what you're talking about in terms of this grassroots movements, sort of creating a new social norm that can persuade higher level officials to really get on board with a new policy that maybe even 10, 20 years ago would have seemed completely impossible. Last one is, and, okay, I can't remember the last one. But anyway, <laughs> um, so these, these are different ways that policy diffusion can, can work. And I think in, in terms of gun control, there, it's gone sort of two ways, at least from my, my research is sort of indicating, which is at one level, there's a, there's a uh, movement at the ground level of learning where people um, in states that are receptive to gun control have sort of developed these techniques and, the, and these policies that have worked really well. California's been you know, a trailblazer in this. They've got over 300 gun control laws in their state. People sort of rip off California, basically, when they decide that they want their own gun control policies. Um, and then the, the federal government has sort of grabbed onto a few of those, made overarching policies that are, that are more coercive, and sort of pushed conservative states that are much more resistant to pass these policies. So it's a bit of like a uh, boomerang, if you will, back into the state. So I, I think there's a critical mass element where if enough um, states have gotten interested and had good results, they can definitely influence the federal government. But there is also, of course, like this political dynamic where if states don't want that policy for political reasons, it's not necessarily going to transmit um, unless there is some top-down pressure. I remembered the last one. It's competition. And I think this is actually super relevant for the gay marriage thing. So states compete with each other, right, for people who will pay taxes. Um, and I think a great example of this is legalizing gay marriage, which it turns out people really want to be in states, especially if they're gay, if their family members are gay, you know, yeah, or if they just, exactly, yeah. they want to come to places where this is legal. So once this started taking off in, in, in especially liberal states, Senators get the idea, oh wow, it passed in California, could it pass here, could it pass here, it could pass in my state, I could be at the helm of this, I could bring in new people, we could start a new startup community, you know, it's, it's um, part of it is people thinking strategically about the, um, the character of their state and of how people view their state in order to attract cool um, citizens. <laughs> yeah, or also just to, to fend off negative consequences for their own political careers, because exactly. if, if it, if there's a groundswell of support for, say, same-sex marriage, or, or much more relevantly, um, uh, uh, anti-discrimination policies now, uh, if they see that it's doing well in one state, and you're a, a legislator on the fence in a state where there aren't, say, anti-discrimination protections, uh, you may find that if, unless you get to support those things, that you, you, you'll have a wide constituency of activists who want you out of a job. 
So that reminds me of a term that hasn't really come up in this conversation yet, and that's states' rights. So this whole issue of uh, the federal government not being able to enforce some of the laws that perhaps they're either building into funding mechanisms or some of the federal laws that they outright pass, is that on accident or by design that they can't enforce some of those things because it, it sort of reinforces the state's abilities then to stand up for what their own constituencies want, to um, even stand up to the federal government and say, that doesn't work for us because our police departments don't have simply the rooms and the space or the funding to be able to build these storage facilities for guns that are confiscated from domestic violence abusers. So, you know, is, is it on accident or is it by design that the federal government is limited in how they can enforce some of these laws? I suppose it is by design. I mean, the, the Constitution spells out, I think it's the 10th Amendment that says any power that hasn't been uh, specifically designated to the federal government is uh, given to the states. Now, in practice, and, or, and, and because of subsequent amendments to the Constitution, there are uh, mechanisms that the federal government can use to enforce itself on the states. And, and there are also parts of the federal Constitution that make it clear that, the, that federal law is supreme over the states. You know, you look at uh, uh, the clauses pertaining to foreign treaties. You know, states can't just say, oh, no, the, uh, the UN treaty, this UN treaty isn't going to apply to us. Some of them try to do that, but it's completely legally uh, unenforceable. So I suppose it is by design uh, rather than by accident. What would you say? Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, this, is, this is something that was thought long and hard about when the Constitution was written um, by the Founding Fathers, trying to figure out how to ensure states' autonomy, but make sure the national government did the things that the national government can do best, which is you know, treaty-making with foreign nations, uh, declaring war, um, regulating interstate commerce, um, making sure you know highways run smoothly and that sort of thing. Um, so I would say it's by design. I, I would also say obviously there's still a lot of debate over um, how how well it's working um, in terms of, of some some issues. But I think in a lot of ways it does make sense for you know the police force in California to really figure out how they want to enforce this law. Where you have a problem is when the police officers you know for political training or, or other reasons at the state level that you have to do with state politics don't actually want to enforce it and, and try to figure out ways to avoid that. Now, I don't think that that attitude was really considered when, when they were writing the Constitution, but I do think that making sure that the states can operate in a way that works most effectively for them was definitely part of the idea. So I'd like to present sort of two extreme scenarios. So scenario one is it's like states' rights max. So you have a complete pullback of the federal government in most ways in sort of kind of a very uh, Ted Cruz kind of way who wants the states to do everything. What would happen if, if, that, if that happened, if you just have the states kind of doing everything? On the other side, what would happen if the federal government stepped in and said, right, we're just going to do basically everything? Can you describe what, 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 would, be the, what would be the end result and what would, the, what would the U.S. look like and what would it be able to do and what wouldn't it be able to do in both scenarios? Um, well, in the former scenario, in the you know, dissolution of the federal government scenario, the Ted Cruz fantasy, let's say, uh, I think we know what it would look like. It would look like the United States under the Articles of Confederation uh, from the late 18th century before the, the final constitution was passed. Um, and that's to say it would be disaster. It, it would be 
uh, disorganized. The federal government wouldn't have uh, you know, any ability to raise funds to execute even the most minor tasks that even maybe the most ardent states' rights advocate would agree needed to be coordinated at the, the national rather than the state level. Um, you would have the withholding of resources and funds from states to the federal government, so basically the ability of states to hold the, the government hostage uh, if it tried to uh, do something that they didn't like. Um, there's a reason why they rewrote the Constitution or rewrote the Articles of Confederation and had the Constitutional Convention. Uh, it's because of that sort of um, uh, highly decentralized system is uh, fraught with division and can get very little done. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at a much more strictly imposed uh, uh, federal authority, uh, I, I don't know what that would look like because I'm not sure the United States has ever tried it, and I'm not sure it, the, the, any federal government that actually tried it would even get away with it. I mean, even the comparatively, you know, from a European perspective, even the tiniest efforts by the federal government to to regulate, to harmonize, to impose their national standards on the states have always been fought. Um, you know, whether it's in times of crisis like you know the Civil War or the Great Depression, or whether it's um, in times of relative prosperity, you know, uh, more recently regarding things like you know as as relatively small as uh, bathroom choice, uh, there's a huge pushback to it. So I I don't know what that would look like. I would venture to say that it would look not American because I just don't think it's possible. Yeah, I, I would. That that was sounded very correct to me. I almost when you said that, I imagined the United States becoming more like Europe pre-European well, Union, you know, like, yeah. I, I can't, if you took away the federal government, the first thing that would happen is a lot of states that get more money from the federal government than they pay in are going to see people running out of the state. Um, and as soon as you see that, you're going to start seeing states put up, you know, immigration, immigration mm -hmm. procedures to make sure that they don't get overcrowded, X, Y, and Z. I mean, California is going to, like, try to do its own thing. Probably they'll be fine. But Mississippi definitely is going to be a complete, you know, ghost town in, in a second. <laughs> um, that's going to cause chaos. That's also going to really encourage um, within state sort of, nationalism in a way, I think. I mean, we already have pretty strong nationalistic tendencies within states. I mean, Texas is already trying to secede. We've got, you know, people from New York, people from California, you know, even within California, we've got this, this sort of uh, loyalty to where you're from in terms of states. Um, I think the national government, for better or for worse, does keep us together in some way. I mean, we have a shared army, we have um, you know, a welfare system that while some people don't like it, we, we at least feel like we have a shared uh, say in it. Social security is something that sort of brings us together. Um, so there we have a whole political or a presidential race that is also uh, completely brings us together in, in choosing that one person together that would that's the commander in chief. Um, so I think that the devolution completely to the states might in some way make states' rights people happy, although ironically a lot of the most states' rights places are some of the poorest country, or poor states, uh, which might really see a backlash to that. Um, I think in terms of the, uh, the increase of the national government, um, that would be, that is a very interesting thought and I think, I, I suppose I would go back to what I had said before, which is that it's really hard to implement um, a lot of these more technical policies 
in a national level to such a diverse group of states. But one thing that probably could happen is a lot of these social policies could potentially be more easily passed through those that don't require you know infrastructure change and, and that sort of thing. But that's gonna that's gonna mm, the, the list on that is quite short compared to the list of uh, that comes with actually governing governing a huge a huge space of land. So maybe yeah, maybe now everyone can get married to whoever they want immediately. <laughs> but if we're gonna try to you know make sure that all the roads connect and that you know we have enough police force to pol you know, police every area and, and attend to the needs of this population versus this population, and it it would be a lot harder. It's interesting too. The when you ask the question and we start talking about it this way, you realize that the one of the main features, one of the main jobs of the federal government is to keep a lid on the kind of cent centrifugal forces in the United States to to keep all of these fifty diverse and different communities from flying off into the distance, uh, or or sort of you know exploding and ripping themselves apart. Um, for better or worse, the federal government does have the ability to. Uh, compel cooperation, or at least the effort to find compromise uh, between you know, regions and demographics and, and constituencies, which would otherwise probably not find any real reason to, to make the effort in the first place, let alone find uh, a solution. That, that's exactly what I was going to say, because it's sort of like the more that we dive into the, the question around the fundamental question of federalism as it relates to the creation and continued existence of the United States, it's sort of like this dynamic is what ties everything together. It is the thread that literally keeps the map in place and keeps all of the different states and that region in general, where we're from, uh, from, from completely separating into different smaller countries because it's this huge, unmanageable mass of land with a huge, relatively unmanageable group of population of people who are <laughs> highly individualistic, who have a very strong sense of control over their own country and their own government. And the fact that there is any sort of like commonality between the entire country is sort of still uh, shocking and amazing. <laughs> Don't be too patriotic. <laughs> what actually is the United States? Is it a kind of an agglomeration of independent uh, governments that have decided to create one federal government to organize themselves? Or is the United States an expression of a deeper felt union amongst all the states, all the people that predates uh, even the states themselves? Uh, this was the debate that they were having during the Civil War. The you know, southern states argued uh, the former uh, position that uh, the United States was kind of a confederation, and that if one state wanted to secede, it had every right to do so. And the Lincoln government argued the opposite, uh, saying that in the Constitution, the object was to create a more perfect union. And that supposes that there was a union that existed before the United States, or before the states themselves created um, a federal government to represent them. And if you take that Lincolnian view, or uh, that Lincoln view, um, then maybe that's the thing that the, uh, that's holding the United States together. That's the glue that holds everyone together, this idea of a union that's bigger and uh, bigger than all the states and that transcends all of them. We'd love for you to join the conversation on Twitter. Tweet at LSE underscore ballpark to share your thoughts on federalism 
or any of our episodes. In fact, we'll feature your thoughts later this season in an Extra Innings podcast. So, so every week we do uh, a little sort of special thing at the end of every episode called I Predict a Riot, where we all talk about our own predictions about what's going to happen, big or small. And we've got our two guests in on it uh, as well this week. But I'm just going to quickly go first. My prediction is, is that Brexit... So the the UK leaving the EU's kind of nas, nascent nas, is it nascent or nascent? nascent nascent federalism will have its own ripple effects into the states in terms of a greater amount of populism becoming more and more. But I think Trump may actually have a bit of a, a bit of a bump as a result as we get towards November. So I think our Brexit may lead to similar kind of interesting feelings in the states as well. My prediction is going back to the the gun violence debate and um, where we would or could see any movement. I personally don't predict any movement on the federal level despite a lot of interesting activism from uh, organizations and even activisms from Democratic members of Congress themselves. Instead, I suspect that this will be something that will be continued to be fought on the state level in state legislatures and then even in uh, municipal governments as well. So no federal laws, more state laws. I think I can also predict, but potentially a contradictory uh, proposition to what Denise just said, which is that I think that federal gun policy is actually probably more likely than ever right now because the Republicans have completely absorbed most or all of the gun rights citizens in the U.S. And that actually wasn't the case for a long time. But now that this political sorting has occurred where all, almost all of people who support gun rights have moved to the Republican Party, there really is far less uh, pressure on Democrats to resist the gun violence prevention movement. Unfortunately, I'm sure we're going to see a few more mass shootings before the, the election arrives. And I think if Hillary Clinton and the Democrats can own it, we could actually see some movement in this area. All right. I've got two or maybe one and a half riots to predict. The first on on the issue of sort of federalism, something that may happen in the future is a greater challenge not just to federal authority but to state authority from municipalities. I think you're going to see more places like Silicon Valley uh, trying to assert its own uh, or greater control over its own jurisdiction and to pass its own sorts of laws uh, that perhaps contravene what the uh, the state governments tried to do and other you know municipalities that are very much out of step with the state that controls them so New York City or Austin or Washington DC even and the other one which is the uh, half prediction related to gun control I predict that at some point you're going to get some people who will actively campaign to alter or repeal the Second Amendment because otherwise they're wow. never going to get wow. the kind of gun control that they really want Old predictions, I like it. You said a riot, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's time to wrap up this episode of The Ballpark. I'd like to thank my co-host, Denise Barron, and our interviewees, Walter Chelkel, Sarah Smucker, and Chris Parks. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. That's me. And also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund, and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. We love them. 
The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark or send us an email at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. You can also send us an audio message of up to one minute with your comments. We'll feature your opinions, tweets, emails, and audio recordings on an Extra Innings podcast later this season. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll be talking about criminal justice. Thanks for listening. Play ball! I remembered the last one. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to point out that she raised her hand, even though it's only four of us here and we're on radio. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a student by, by, by creep. <laughs>